Open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the one in the pew in front of you. We're going to be on page 1082. Uh, As always, if you guys have any questions that you want to um, bring up at any point, you can text our Q&R number and we'll take a look at those at the end of the service this morning. We've been going through this series uh, talking about uh, just kind of the mission, the vision, the values of Revelation Church at the beginning of the year, why we exist, what we're here for, and the kind of people that we are seeking to be. We said that, that God is not hidden, that, that he is a God that pursues, that reveals himself to people, and that our, our reality is that we are called to know Jesus and to make him known to others. We said that another reality that we have as Christians is that we've been adopted by the Father. We've been brought into the family. We're also loyal to the Son. We swear our allegiance to Jesus and we are empowered by the Spirit. We are given spiritual gifts, spiritual fruit, new character, new life by the Spirit of God. And then we transitioned away from things that are true about us necessarily as Christians to things that we are growing up into as followers of Jesus. And we said we want to be people, uh, we want to be becoming people who live in communion with God, that we recognize the moments where God is present and active and to begin to hear his voice and live there. We said we want to be becoming people who submit to Scripture humbly. Last week, we said that Scripture is our authority and it's our ultimate guide, but we need to be humble because sometimes it's hard to understand and Christians have disagreements and we need to walk in grace with one another. And this week, we're talking about becoming people who walk in honesty and authenticity. And the reason we're doing this, and I've brought this Henry Nouwen quote up every week, is he says, from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we're faced with the call to become who we are. We're all on a journey as Christians to become more and more like Jesus. When Jesus says, follow me, he knows what he's getting. He's getting broken people that do not look like Jesus, do not act like Jesus, and are pretty confused about everything about the faith of Christ. And he takes us anyway, and he just says, come on, let's go. Let's figure it out. And we walk. And so becoming people who walk in honesty and authenticity, our third core value, means that today we're going to be talking about sin and specifically how we can live in victory over sin. So the first thing I want to ask about this idea of honesty and authenticity is I want to say, well, who is honest and authentic? And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, we read this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. So this is who God is. He is who he is who he is. He's never not who he is. The one true God for him to not be authentically himself would make him something other than God. And that's not possible. And God, John says, is the most straightforward person you've ever met. He's never manipulative. He's never dishonest. He's never two-faced. He's never even just a little bit squirrely. What you see is what you get with God. And so what do you see? You see that God is good. God is holy. God is lovely. God is just. God is righteous. God is beautiful. God is the greatest of all the good things that we experience. 
And more than that, John says, God's visibility is in his very essence. God is light. Light is always light. It can never be darkness. God is not hidden. John Stott writes about this, that it is his nature to reveal himself as it is the property of light to shine. And the revelation is of perfect purity and unutterable majesty. We are to think of God as a personal being, infinite in all his perfections, transcendent, the high and lofty one, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, from Isaiah 57, yet who desires to be known and has revealed himself. God is light. John intends for us to know what God is like. And you can know God because God is honest and authentic. He reveals who he really is to people. So God is the ultimate honest and authentic person. What does it mean for us to become honest and authentic people? Look at chapter one, verse six of first John. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. Honesty is not lying and authenticity is living in a way that is truthful. If we are lying and not practicing the truth, we are being dishonest and inauthentic. And this is a serious warning from John. He says, if, we're, if we say we're Christians, that we know God and we live lives of secrecy and falsehood, we are lying about our relationship with God. And this is really dangerous because it's not about the things that we say we believe. Ray Ortland writes, we might not notice that this is happening in our church if we look only at our statement of faith and tell ourselves we believe the right things. And it's so easy for us to check a bunch of intellectual boxes and say, I'm a Christian. And that's good. I think there are intellectual boxes, but it's insufficient. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love this quote. He says, I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half telling them that doctrine is not enough. And if we're going to be people committed to studying and knowing the scriptures, which is what we talked about last week, that's a good start. But a lot of people know the scriptures and still walk in darkness. James says, even, even the demons know the truth of scripture. So the process of becoming people who walk in honesty and authenticity requires us to begin to trust that God is trustworthy. Jackie Hill Perry in her book, Holier Than Thou, says, if God is holy, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. If he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? We need to come to an understanding because God is straightforward with us. He reveals himself, who he really is with us, that we can trust him. The heart of Christ is over abundantly toward you in love. Dane Ortland from Gentle and Lowly, and I know some of us are reading that together. It says, if the actions of Jesus are reflective of who he most deeply is, we cannot avoid the conclusion that it is the very fallenness which he came to undo that is most irresistibly attractive to him. When Jesus finds you in brokenness and sin, he doesn't run away from you, he runs to you. And this is the good news that needs to be our anchor when we start talking about honesty 
and authenticity. We can bring our mess to God because we can trust God. We are in the process of being made into the image of Christ, right? This is the journey that we're on. So, so we're, we're being made in some sense to be like God. So if God is honest and authentic and he walks in the light, we should be people that also walk in the light. We are not to walk in the darkness, John says. Because God's character, his promises, his light are intended to shine on us. So the process of honesty and authenticity requires two things. It requires knowing God and it requires knowing ourselves. John Calvin at the very beginning of the Institutes of Christian Religion says, our wisdom, if it is to be thought genuine, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. John Calvin is one of the greatest theologians in church history. He's a super Bible geek. And yet he says, we not only need to know God, we also need to know ourselves. We need to understand both our sinful, broken selves and the new creation reality that Jesus has made us into. And maybe some of you are thinking about this verse, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? How can we know ourselves? We don't even have access to ourselves. We deceive ourselves. But then Jeremiah answers that question for us in the very next verse. I, the Lord, examine the heart, test the, test the heart. Part of the process of walking in the light is asking God to illuminate and teach us about our own deceitful hearts. And, and that's, that's fairly, I mean, maybe we're okay with that. Maybe, maybe you're hearing that and you're like, okay, I can, God is good. I can trust him. I need to be honest before God. I need to be my authentic self before God. That's, that's good. But look at what John says in verse seven. He says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us all from sin. You would think that he would say, we have fellowship with God if we walk in the light. But John is not talking about a relationship that is private between me and God. He's talking about a community of people who practice walking in the light. He says, we're called to practice living lives of honesty and authenticity. And this is a practice that's done in community with other people. And what does it do? It leads to the freedom from the power and presence of sin. Because see, walking in the light is always hindered by sin. If, we, if you were with us in our, our Genesis series last year, we, we read in Genesis chapter two, the, the man and his wife were naked and they, yet they felt no shame. And that is a physical sexual statement, but it's also much more than that. It's a relational statement. There was nothing in between Adam and Eve. They were, everything was open between them. There were no secrets. There was no deception. But then in the very next chapter, they sin. They, they do something that God says, don't do. And what happens? The, both, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What do the couple do when they sin against God? They hide from each other. 
They experience shame in their own relationship with one another. Now they hide from God too, but the very first reaction after sinning against God is it separates them. And this is what sin does. We don't trust God. We feel fear and guilt and shame and we come up with ways to cover it. We wear masks in order to cope with the darkness that we know lives in us. And we've gotten so good at it as humans that we don't realize that we're doing it most of the time. We say things, act in ways, and present ourselves in social situations, all in ways that will help us cultivate a specific version of ourselves that protects us from the fear of being completely known by other people. What are the things that no one knows about you? Even married people, what are the things that your spouse doesn't know about you? Things that are so personal, so scary, so tightly secured in the dark that you can't imagine how bad it would be if people knew your secret. If you've grown up in church, maybe you've, you've heard this little illustration. I've heard it a lot where, where maybe, you're, maybe we're in heaven or I don't know where the setting is, but there's a lot of people gathered around and there's like a big screen in the back and God plays your entire life on the screen. Every thought, every action, every attitude, everything in front of everyone. And usually the, the punchline to that illustration is, aren't you glad Jesus saved you from your sins so that no one will ever see that movie? But I wonder if instead we should say, aren't you glad Jesus saved you from your sins so that everyone can see that movie and rejoice with you in God's grace in your life for his glory? This is what walking in the light is. It's trusting so deeply in who God is and what he has done for you that you can stand in front of him and the community of his people with all your broken pieces and know that you are loved and accepted for who you are, not just the masks that you put on to fit in. Jesus didn't die for the false projection of yourself that you share with the rest of us. He died for the real you underneath. Later in 1 John in chapter four, he says, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. And so many of us, maybe all of us live here in fear. And some of us have gotten so used to pretending that we don't even notice it anymore. For others of us, the fear is crippling. So if we're going to be people that walk in the light, how do we work that into that direction? And John says in, in verse nine, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess our sins. We're still talking about fellowship with one another. Some of us maybe have a, uh, maybe an anti-Catholic bias towards the confession of sin. But just because you think that particular expression of the church gets it wrong doesn't mean that scripture doesn't teach that we should confess our sins to one another. We read it in James as well. James 5, 16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Both John and James are saying we need to be people who are open about our brokenness and our struggle. 
But we mess this up all the time. And I've got a couple, um, four ways that we mess this up. The first thing is we only confess to God. And maybe what comes to mind is, is Psalm 51.4, where, where David says, against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. And that's a good verse to pull out when you want to say, I, I only need to confess my sins to God. It's not appropriate to confess my sins to others. But I just wonder if you were Bathsheba's dad, is that the counsel that you would give her? You know, don't, don't be too hard on David. I know he had your I know, I, I know he sexually assaulted you and got you pregnant and had your husband murdered, but you know, he really only sinned against God. I don't, I don't think that's what the word of God is saying. And I know it's not because there are multiple places throughout scripture that says that we constantly sin against other people. And, and we need to, Jesus says, if you sin against someone, you need to go to them and fix it. You don't just need to go like, well, ultimately that was against God. So I don't need to worry about it. What we need to learn from Psalm 51.4 is that sin is always ultimately against God. D.A. Carson says, God is the most offended party. And we should learn that from this verse, but not use it as an excuse to not walk in the light. And additionally, we're not talking about seeking out the person you've wronged. Jesus makes that a given. Whether you've wronged someone or someone has wronged you, Jesus says you drop everything and you go to them and you fix it. We're talking about being honest and authentic about who we are in the midst of our brokenness in the body of believers. Leslie Mitten in his commentary on James says, if confession to God produces in us the necessary hopefulness of victory, the courage in the fight against evil, the deliverance from the sense of fighting our battle alone, then confession to God alone is adequate for us. So he says, basically, like, if you can just confess your sins to God and and, and have victory over your sin, then great. But how many of us right now are struggling all alone with patterns of sin that we cannot shake? You're you're pleading to God on a daily basis. I need something from you to overcome this sin. And he's saying, I gave you something. They're sitting here right now. The second thing that we do to mess this up is we don't deal with the sin committed against us. This is something that Dr. Gary Bashir's kind of um, gave me a light bulb moment with. Sometimes I have sinned and I am guilty, but other times I've been sinned against and I'm hurt. But the reality is whether I'm guilty or I'm hurt, both of those things will lead to shame and fear and withdrawal and denial and blame and anger and bitterness outside of the gospel. And some of us have stories of profound sin that has been done against us. And we have responded by that sin, to that sin by walking in darkness, by stuffing it deep down so that no one can see it. And I know from talking to people and from my own experience, how long do you have to hold the pain of your hurt in the dark spots of your soul before that hurt actually becomes the thing that is controlling your life? That's why sin is so insidious. It will kill the perpetrator and it will kill the victim. Are we walking in the light when it comes to the sin committed against us? The third way we mess walking in the light up is that we we don't really want Jesus cleansing. Because see, this sort of thing, walking in the light, it's, it's hard. One of my, my wife and I love to go to this hotel in Long Beach, Washington. It's, um, it's, it's just become our place. 
And it's a very hipster hotel. And it cracks me up because all of the, all of the interior trim work is like just random boards that are like stuck on the wall and they're, they're uh, stapled or, or they're, they're finished nailed in like just badly and they're not sanded. And they're like with these weird butt joints in the corners and nothing is cocked. And it just looks like, I mean, it looks like I could have done it. And I always think about my father-in-law because he's such a, um, he's an amazing carpenter. And I just think he could never go to this hotel because it would just drive him crazy. But the reason I think they do it is like, they'll say like, oh, you know what? It's, this is, we're hipster. We're authentic. We don't care about all that fancy stuff. We're just going to do it. And it's going to be, you know, real and natural. And, but then I also wonder, like, think about all the money we could save if we don't, didn't hire a trim carpenter. See, sometimes we can, we can find a, a false sense of authenticity by cheaping out. We're not really interested in the hard work of fighting our sin and we'll settle for, a, for creating community around the acceptance of our brokenness. You know, I got my problems, you got your problems. We just kind of exist in the midst of our problems. We become people that accept one another for who we are, but we don't provoke one another to good works like the scriptures teach. But that sort of community is false because it betrays the confession that we make that Jesus is Lord. Jesus commands us to be new people. And it's good if we're willing to sit with one another in our brokenness and sin, but if we're not willing to let Jesus power in, then that's a cheap grace that doesn't bring transformation. The fourth way we, we screw this up is, is we just don't deal with our sin. This is the very common phrase, I'm, I'm fine, right? How many of us like just default to that on a Sunday morning? How are you doing? I'm fine. I do it. I catch myself doing it all the time. John says in, in verse eight, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then in 10, again, he says, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What's the truth that's not in us? It's that we're, we're broken people. We're saved, we're adopted, we're redeemed, we're made new, but until the kingdom fully comes, we're still sick with sin. And we walk around pretending that it doesn't exist because we want to save face, we want to wear a mask, we want everyone to think everything's okay. But sin is a cancer in our souls. When cancer grows, it creates tumors, right? And these, sometimes these, if it's bad, these tumors can be large. And, and the good thing, I guess, about a large tumor, depending on where it grows, is that it's, it's easy to take out. You can get in there, there it is. You can see it, cut around it. But the scary thing is the little tendrils that go off in every direction and the little cells that break off and move to some other part of the body that you can't see, that you don't know about. And if you've been a Christian for a while, hopefully the big tumors have been removed by God. There's those, those big things that like, yeah, I used to do this and be this and, and God had to work on that and then it's, it's been removed from your life and you don't really deal with those things now. But, but the little stuff, it can grow. This is one thing that the spiritual disciplines help us with, identifying those mini tumors. 
scripture, prayer, fasting, silence, solitude, journaling. As you pursue God through the disciplines, you will have a more serious and significant view of your own sin. Wow, I didn't even know that was in there. I wouldn't have noticed it if I hadn't paid attention, if I hadn't asked the Lord to show me. And sometimes that sin that is either done by you or done to you is recent, but sometimes it's been there for a long time and God wants to cut it out. And sometimes we fail to address sin due to negligence. We're just not aware, like Calvin said, of who we are. We're not participating in the disciplines to give God space to shine his light on us. But sometimes for for many of us in the church, we have failed to address our sin because of an overreaction to fundamentalism. Many experiences people have, I hear stories all the time, that where people wield accusation of sin as a weapon. Just horrific things. Public shaming, judgmentalism. And so we just decide, you know what? We're just not going to think about sin anymore. It's just not something we're going to talk about. And then you have churches where there are no moral lines, no ethical standards, or maybe churches where we just talk about blessing and, and money and prosperity and happiness and everybody's fine because we're unwilling to deal with those things that are deep inside. Walking in the light, being honest and authentic is hard. It's scary and it's costly, but it's where God is because In him, there is no darkness at all. Ray Ortland says it this way, this always costs something. The price we pay is to face ourselves. That is humiliating and painful. It's why we shun the light. There are episodes in our past we don't want to think about. Harsh words, acts of betrayal, broken promises, or worse. We shove these memories down into the darkness of our excuses and blame shifting. We refuse to call sin, sin. We feel too threatened by what we have done, even to admit it to ourselves, much less confess it to others. But those places of deepest shame are where the Lord Jesus loves us the most tenderly. If there Is there any reason not to walk in his light together where we recover fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin? I want to talk about a couple different like practical ways that we can be a church that walks in authenticity and honesty and authenticity. But first I want to, I want to share an illustration and um, that illustration comes from my own testimony. And many of you have heard me share this or at least parts of it but some of you haven't, and, and it's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good illustration of, of what I'm talking about. So when, when I was young, third or fourth grade, I was, I had, I was um, in public school, had friends. Some of these friends, we would have sleepovers, and in the midst of those sleepovers, we began to um, play around with inappropriate sexual uh, things as young boys. And then as I grew older, I had another friend that I saw occasionally. And then that same uh, set of uh, sins began to happen in my life there. And it really shaped me because it was before I, I reached puberty and then I, reached, I became um, an adolescent. And I didn't know what to do about it because I, I, was, I was feeling these, these very strong pulls towards sexual attraction to boys and men. And then the, um, 
the, the internet age of pornography happened. Because those of us in this room that are in their uh, late 30s, early 40s, we're like the elder statesmen of internet pornography. Generations prior had, had no idea what that's like. I had a computer in my bedroom, and I was instantly taken to any kind of perversion that I wanted to see. And I struggled because I knew the things I was feeling, the things that I was doing, they were out of step with the gospel. And I went to a church that, that talked about the grace of God and his love for us. But we also talked about the gay agenda and how they were trying to take over the country and how they were an abomination to the Lord. And so I knew I could never tell anyone what I was experiencing. But the th thing was, in my early 20s, I got married. I, I, I married a, one, a, a friend that I, I met in, in youth group, and we had been friends for, for years, and I got married, and all of my problems were going to go away. But the problem was that they didn't. I still felt the same way. I still snuck off away from my wife, and now I wasn't just abusing people through the internet. I was breaking my marriage vows. And I remember trying before we got married, long before we got married, me and, and her and some other friends asked a church leader, you know, is it, is it wise to confess your sexual history with someone you're going to marry? And, and this church leader said, no, in Psalm 51.4, David said, against you and you alone have I sinned, and so you shouldn't do that. And that didn't sit very well with me, but I kind of just accepted that. There was one point when we were engaged that I tried to tell Joanna kind of what was going on in my world, but she was, bless her heart, super sweet and kind and innocent. And I, I wasn't going to be straightforward about it. So I just kind of wanted her to pick up on it and she just didn't. And so then I, I just didn't say anything. And for years, I struggled secretly with this sin, this pattern of sin. I didn't tell anybody. And I beg God, help me fix this, make it better. And I was working in a church at one point, about 10 years into our marriage. And I was really getting excited about pastoring Jesus' people. And I didn't hear an audible voice, but as loud as I've ever heard God speak to me in my life, he said, if you don't tell your wife what's going on, we cannot move forward. And so I sat on that for about a day, trying to work up the courage to tell my wife about the secret life that I lived. And I chickened out. I wrote her an email, big, long email. I, sent, I was at work, and I sent it to her, and I I'd outlined just all of the junk in my life from the time I was nine forward. And I just thought, this, this could be the end. This could be the end of my marriage. This could be the end of, of my calling. This could be the end of everything that I know to be good and true. And that afternoon, she texted me. She said, please come home. So I came home. And that began a process of her loving me like Jesus loves me in a way 
that I have never felt before. And the beauty of the gospel of Christ was made real to me in that moment in ways that were unreal before then. And it was hard. It was hard to, to navigate. She had, I mean, she, she was now opened up to all of this betrayal that had, I had committed against her and I had to seek her forgiveness over and over again. And I still struggled. And I still, to this day, it's not something like God fixed it. Like it's still there. But it began a process of walking in the light to where I could slowly have victory over it. And it never, ever would have happened, you guys, if I just struggled alone. So I, I want to I share just, just four things before we close, four ways that we can practically be honest and authentic in Revelation Church. Number one, honesty and authenticity it glorifies Jesus, not us, right? This happens with celebrity stories all the time. So-and-so checks themselves into rehab or they, they admit to some kind of weird thing in their relationship with their spouse and everybody goes like, aren't they brave? And they, they do whatever they, they do and then they get, you know, like a guest spot on The View or something. Like they're rewarded for this in this way. And, but that's the thing. They may be brave, but if you're a Christian, the, the real story of honesty and authenticity for you and I is, is not us, but it's Jesus. The word that needs to be spoken in the midst of our brokenness is, look what God has done. The second thing that we need to keep in mind is we need to find safe people to walk in the light with. Don't just... Um, you need to decide you're going to lay out your whole depths of your life with everyone. As hard as it is to be authentic to people, not everyone is mature enough to handle you being open with them. And if you are too liberal with your story, you might get hurt. When I was, um, I was probably in fifth grade, I don't remember. I played baseball. My dad taught our baseball team. And I, my recollection of it is early in the season at practice, I got hit with a pitch. And after that, it, it just really messed up my head. I couldn't, I, every time I went up to bat for the whole season, I, I flinched because I didn't want to get hit with a pitch again. And see, I can, I can tell my story and talk to you about just kind of the dark parts of my soul because I told my wife and she loved me. And then I, I got the courage to tell my best friend and he loved me. And then I was able to tell a small group of close friends and they loved me and supported me. And today, if some of you were to choose not to love me, I'm strong enough to not, that, to not let that be permanently damaging. But if you begin to walk in honesty and authenticity in the wrong company and you get hurt, it might be like me getting hit with that pitch and, and you just, you're just unable to share again with someone else because you were hurt by it. So be wise with who you share 
your story with. This is more than a a Sunday morning relationship. This is another reason to get into a community group where you can gather around God's word and the fellowship of the brothers and sisters and get to know people deeply. Third thing for us as a church is that we need to grow in empathy for people that are struggling. I was talking to someone who's a part of our church community who is also a member of a sexual minority about their fears of being here. On the one hand, they feel incredibly welcome to be here, but every single relationship is an opportunity to be rejected if they know who I really am. And maybe you don't have any experience with that, but for those of you that do, you know the stress of wearing that mask. And even if you wanna share your story with people, if you wanna be open and honest with people, what if it doesn't go well? And even if it's gone well with this person or this group, every single time it's another chance to be hurt. I don't want to focus completely on the gay community, but the LGBTQ Christians have one of the most difficult callings in the church today. For for someone to take Jesus's words to deny yourself and pick up your cross seriously enough that you set aside your deep physical, emotional, spiritual urges to walk in celibacy and faithfulness to Christ in a culture that says, you shouldn't have to do that. In fact, if you do that, you're equally offensive to the world. Men and women that are taking up that calling need to be loved and supported by the church. And every time somebody who feels that way gathers up the courage to be their real selves, they have to weigh the cost of being rejected. Ray Ortland writes, fear of human disapproval feeds political posturing. It makes us want to be perceived in a certain way and identified with certain people. It destroys honesty, spontaneity, and joy, and it builds walls that, peop- that Jesus died to tear down. And it's easy to read that quote and think, the person that is walking in darkness needs to get over themselves, get over their fear, and step out into the light. But what I would ask is, where does that fear come from? And what am I doing to create it in their heart? And fourthly, We need to be a church that communicates that we are trustworthy people. Sometimes we we have a tendency to talk about people like they aren't here. And I, I do this, I hear other people do this, but in my experience, when I heard my leaders, my pastors talk about things that I was experiencing, like no one in the room was experiencing them, people, people like me were always out there. They were never in here. That communicated something to me, that it wasn't safe to be myself in here. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's divorce, drugs, abuse, dealing with death, physical or mental illness, infertility, homelessness. The issues could go on and on and on and on. Alan Noble says, given how easy it is to avoid vulnerability in a contemporary world, we can't assume that just because people around us haven't shared their trauma and suffering, they are okay you are better off assuming that everyone you meet is bearing some unspoken burden. 
Paul encourages us in Colossians 3, therefore as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And I've seen it over and over and over again. We have this great capacity to be kind and gentle and compassionate to people in front of us in the midst of their brokenness. But if we don't know that that brokenness is there, we can actually talk about them behind their back while being right in front of them in really harmful ways. And the key to this is that the fruit of the Spirit being produced in you It's not just going to change the way you respond to people when you know the right Christian response in this situation. It will change you from the inside out and you will begin to telegraph to the people around you that you are a trustworthy person just in the way you talk, the things that you talk about, the the people that you talk about and how you characterize them when you think they're not a part of the group. And it will help people to bring their true selves into the light. And church, this is, this is critical for us. It's so important for us. Because to the extent that we walk in the light is the extent that we will mature in Christ. And if we are people that are holding our brokenness in, and there's a part of you that just says, nobody can know about this. that is what's going to kill you. That is the part of your soul that is rotting and dying. As we become people who live in communion with God, we submit to scripture humbly. Scripture commands us to walk in honesty and authenticity, to walk in the light, because that's where God is. Are we willing to, as individuals and as a church to step into that scary place and trust that we will find Jesus there? Are we willing to set aside all of our assumptions about people in order to be the body of Christ when someone dares to share their brokenness with us? And none of us are there yet. We all have assumptions and and bad days and and, and just, we're not equipped. But we need to be a people that are, that are becoming this, that are practicing this, that are stepping out in safe places, that are telegraphing that we are safe places. And when someone has the courage to say, hey, this is, this is, this is what I've struggled with in the past, or this is what was done to me that I'm experiencing shame over, or maybe it's, this is what I did last night, that we're a people that bring the love and the grace of Christ in that situation and walk with one another to overcome and get victory over our sin. So let's do some Q&R. If we are saved by grace and not by works and saved because we believe in the gospel, then what separates us from the demons if they know the truth? It would seem that we are both created beings that know the truth, yet one is saved and the other is not. If works do not separate us, what does? We are saved not, yet we are not saved by works. (sighs) 
I mean, ultimately, we're saved by the work of Jesus, right? We are saved by works. It's the work of Christ on the cross. And maybe in a, in a big level, the, the demons aren't given that privilege. They're in rebellion to God, and they're not offered salvation in Christ. But the other thing is that we, we talked about this a number of weeks ago, that we are people that are loyal to the Son. The demons, the demons fear Jesus because they know that their time is up and he will destroy them. But that's not the relationship that we're called on into with Christ. We're called into a relationship of, of love and grace where he is our good king and we are his loving subjects. He's called our big brother or adopted into the family. And so if we take from that idea that we can pray a prayer or check a box or sign a doctrinal statement and then just forget the gospel and live in blatant rebellion to the king, then, then we're, not, we're not really loyal to Jesus. We're not really walking with Christ. And so do works save us? No. But when we are saved, when we, give our, when we place our faith, our trust, our loyalty in Jesus, we are given the power to walk in good works and we are given the ability for our life to be changed by the gospel. And there is a kind of um, nihilism that just says, my sin is too hard to overcome, but Jesus saved me and everything will be fine. But I would say, like, I think Jesus wants you to overcome your sin. I think, I think he didn't just die to save you from the penalty of your sin. He died to save you from the power of your sin. And to just throw up our hands and say, well, it's, it's, not, it's, it's just not going to get any better. I think just presume, presumes that we don't have the power of God on our side. And I think we absolutely do. Now, this wasn't a very lighthearted message. It's a very serious subject talking about sin, but... But the joy of being able to be yourself, of not having to hide. And some of you know what I'm talking about, just the crippling uh, stress of whatever the persona you wear is. To be free from that, God, that's what God wants for us all. And we need, we need one another to help us get there. So that's my prayer for us as we consider what it looks like to become people who walk in honesty and authenticity. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.